If you have your Bibles, I invite you or ask that you would go ahead and turn to Exodus chapter 6. Exodus chapter 6, and we will begin reading in verse 10 in just a moment. This morning's passage has us once again on the precipice of seeing and hearing within the Exodus the great salvation that the Lord has in store for his people. We are building up to that moment that begins in chapter 7 with the first of the ten plagues, and Lord willing, we will start that next week. You might remember back from chapter 4 and 5 how everything sort of shifts. They're in, they're in slavery in Egypt, but they are rejoicing that God has sent his deliverer to them. And then Moses goes to Pharaoh, asks to let the people go, and everything goes wrong. Everything goes bad. Things are bad. People are in a bad place. Israel's in a bad place. Pharaoh makes it much worse for the people by having them make bricks without straw. Pharaoh seems to be at his height of control and power and manipulation. Moses is at his lowest place as well, questioning the Lord and why he is there. And then we come to chapter 6. We come to chapter 6, and the word of the Lord comes to Moses. And the Lord answers Moses' complaint, and he tells him, first and foremost, reminding him, do you not remember who spoke to you? I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. The very thing that he needed, the, the name of God, the, the remembrance of who spoke to him in the desert, the very thing that we need to remember most is Christ in the name of God and how God is with us. And the Lord tells him that he is going to reveal to him and to them his great salvation in ways that not even the patriarchs could ever have thought and ever seen, which was promised to them, is now become, going to become sight to the Israelites. And then the Lord tells Moses to speak to the people, and he tells them these seven I wills. And in these seven I will are seven promises that I distilled into four gospel promises because these promises point us to the promises that the Lord has given to us as his church, his glorious promises that he has accomplished for us in Christ. And first is given the promise of liberation out of slavery, of sin. They have been promised to be set free from their bondage in Egypt. Second, in Christ, we have been given a promised redemption through the blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ. He, God himself, becomes our Redeemer for the forgiveness of sins. Judgment is poured out on Christ for our redemption, just as judgment will be poured out upon Egypt for Israel's redemption. Third, in Christ, we have been given adoption as sons. And as Israel in their redemption was adopted as sons to be the people of God, God would make them his people and he would be their God. So has Christ adopted us and brought us into his family. And lastly, in Christ, we have been promised a future inheritance that is unfading and imperishable. And praise God, it is one that awaits us just as they awaited to enter the promised land that was flowing with milk and honey. But, and this is important again for our passage today, verse 9, Moses goes to the people, tells them all that the Lord has given, these seven I wills, these wonderful promises that God was just about to accomplish, just on the precipice of, of accomplishing on their behalf. The people reject Moses and reject the word of God once more because of their broken spirit and their harsh slavery. Now, could this be the end of the story? Well, clearly no. Exodus goes on for quite a bit more, but could this be the end? Could God at this point say, enough of this people, I'm going somewhere else? Is this an impasse that the Lord is incapable of breaching? 
Is this a heart that is difficult or a, a group of hearts of people that the Lord is incapable of changing? Can he overcome? Well, our passage this morning, I believe, prepares us to answer those questions. We look to Exodus chapter 6. We're going to start reading in verse 10. Hold on tight because we have quite a bit that we're going to cover this morning. So the Lord said to Moses, verse 10, verse 11, Go in, tell Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people and of Israel and about Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. These are the heads of their father's houses, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, Haniok, Pelu, Hezron, and Carmi. These are the clans of Reuben, the sons of Simeon, Jemiel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shaal, the son of the Canaanite woman. These are the clans of Simeon. These are the names of the sons of Levi according to their generation, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari, the years of the life of Levi being 137 years, the sons of Gershon, Libni, and Shimia, and their clans, the sons of Kohath, Amram, Izhar, Hezron, and Uziel, the years of the life of Kohath being 133 years, the son of Merari, Maali, and Mushi. These are the clans of the Levites according to their generations. Verse 20. Amram took his wife Yoshebed, his father's sister, and, and she bore him Aaron and Moses, the years of the life of Amram being 137 years. The sons of Izar, Korah, Nepheg, and Zerchi. The sons of Uziel, Mishael, Izalan, and Sithri. Aaron took his wife Elisheba and the daughter, the daughter of Abinadab the son of Nashon, and she bore him Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithmar, the sons of Korah, Aser, Elkanah, and Abasaph. These are the clans of the Korites. Eleazar, Aaron's son, took his wife, one of the daughters of Putiel, and she bore him Phinehas. These are the heads of the father's houses of the Levites by their clans. These are, the Aaron, these are the Aaron and Moses whom the Lord said, Bring the people out of Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt. And this Moses and this Aaron, on the day that the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? Verse, chapter 7, verse 1. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. Yes, you shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell the Pharaoh, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so, and they did just as the Lord commanded them. And now Moses was 80 years old, and Aaron was 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. And this is the word of the Lord, and may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see his holy, inspired, inerrant word for his glory and for our joy. Amen. So the conversation between the Lord and Moses 
continues despite the tragic response of the people of Israel in verse 9. We hear the, the Lord telling Moses that the plan is still the same. Go to Pharaoh. And in verse 14 through 27, maybe a little awkward for us, it's definitely a little awkward for me, reading the genealogy. That essentially is a genealogy of Moses and Aaron from the tribe of Levi. And then the last section of our passage takes us back to the conversation in verses 28 through 30, and then in verses, uh, verses 1 through 7 of chapter 7. The Lord then specifically answers the response to Moses' questions. Now, when I thought about this passage, I began to believe that the main thrust of this passage is dealing with obedience. It's dealing with obedience. What are we to do when it seems to us all other avenues have ended? The Lord is telling Moses, be obedient. Continue to be in obedience. How do we understand this word, obedience? Or to, to, to be obedient? Now, cultur culturally speaking, this, this word nor its concept of obedience is neither popular nor talked about very much. We are, we are as a culture, not very far off from what, what is written in 2 Timothy chapter 3, that the people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, yet denying its power. If you are a part of our Wednesday night series, this past Wednesday night in the Truth and Consequences series, we dealt with the topic of subversion to authority. And it helped us grasp the idea of what it means, what's happened in our culture, why authority is denied. Where parental authority is on the rocks, all authority is not just questions, but it is to be suspected. And of course, the consequences of bad authority and abusive authority and tyrannical authority does begin to weigh on us, certainly, but the consequences of the rejection of all authority in our society, we have to admit, has not been good. It has been an utter disaster. It has been an utter disaster to our society. It has been an utter disaster to churches and to families and to children, to every aspect of society. When those chains, when those bonds, in a sense, that tie us down in obedience to authority are let go, then we see what happens. It begins at home. Obedience starts in the home with children. So, so no wonder that is where the attack has begun and continues to have its way. Parents are to lovingly teach their children or their child that they are the ones that have authority, which means you are setting a precedent that there is a such a thing as authority over a person. And that authority is based upon what God has said in his word that parents are to teach, to shape, to correct, and to discipline their children in the ways of the Lord. And then based upon their authority that God has given, right, this derived authority, children then are to learn what it means to be obedient. I have a couple of children sitting up in this front row that are struggling right now to learn obedience. Some children, some children are more compliant than others. But generally speaking, training in obedience takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of effort. It takes a lot of consistency. 
There are a lot of smiles and there are a lot of tears. There is a lot of discipline. It's a daily task, seven days a week. Obedience to a good authority is a good thing. It is God-ordained, and it's according to a biblical worldview. The Bible is filled with commands and exhortations of God's people to be obedient, not only to the authorities that God has set upon uh, over us, but to the authority of his word. God has called us to be obedient to his word and to his will. And the church's obedience to God's word as we see throughout Scripture, is vitally important. God's people, Christians, the church, we are, we are not created by our, our, by our obedience. We're not just a group of people that decided to be good and to strive together to be good, and then we've kind of become this cliquish group. That's not who we are. That's not, our obedience has not created us, but rather we are the, a group of people that have been created out of the obedience of one man, and that is Jesus Christ. And in Christ then, saved by his grace alone, then we are called to walk in obedience following our Savior. In John's Gospel, Jesus said it very, very plainly. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's plain. You, you, you don't need a scholar or a, a better preacher to explain this, what it means. Jesus was very explicit what he says here in John 14, 15. And he says in John 14, 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he is, he loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Obedience to the word of God is vital to the Christian life. And I think most people, most people have your ears to hear and eyes to see. If you are a Christian, I think you understand that. I think we could amen that. We see the, the understanding and we want to put our life's pursuit in that priority. That's our highest priority is to be obedient to God's word. But what about when it does not make sense? What about when obedience becomes difficult to the point where you just do not understand if you can continue in obedience? Or why you should even try? Do you resist obedience? Do you resent obedience? Do you grumble and complain? Or begrudge the Lord's call to obedience and to holiness. In the first section of this passage in verses 10 through 13, like I said in the beginning, it comes right on the heels of the failure and rejection that Moses and Aaron feel. Because, remember, they were rejected by the people twice and rejected by Pharaoh God comes back in verses 1 through 9 with that serious encouragement of the seven I wills and the promises for Moses and the people to remember that I am the Lord. But then in verse 9, they're rejected. And we don't want to hear it, Moses. We're, we're done with that plan. We're, we're done believing these fairy tales. This is our life. Leave us alone before you make it any worse. And so certainly at this point, when things seemingly couldn't get any lower, they do. But the Lord comes right back to Moses. Right back to Moses in his discouragement of being rejected. And God essentially tells Moses is this. He says, get back at it. Get going. You're not done here. The plan has not changed. Your purpose has not changed. I am not done here. The mission and purpose has not changed. It hasn't changed just because people don't like it. How about that? That God's purpose and plan in this life and in this world has not changed just because people don't like it. Praise God. Where would we be? Can you see already how this passage is applying to our obedience to the word of God? 
Let me explain. Look at verse 10 again. The Lord reveals himself to Moses, and he speaks to him in his discouragement. Verse 11, go and tell Pharaoh to let the people go. To let the people go out of the land. Basically, again, go do what I've already told you to do. He's repeating himself. I, I know how the Lord feels. Repeat myself often. Do this. Do this. Why haven't you done this? Why is this still sitting there? Come on. What's going on? Go. Fathers, we can relate. And what matters and what is important here is, is obedience. Go. And thankfully, verse 6, we see Aaron and Moses' obedience. But from Moses' perspective, he comes back at the Lord, and, and in his, this obedience just doesn't make sense to him. This obedience to compute, why go back to Pharaoh? Why would you send me back again to go do what I already did? Because the matters or the, the, the results are just going to get worse. Verse 12, Moses' honest reply back, Behold, your people of Israel have not listened to me. How will Pharaoh listen to me? I'm a man of uncircumcised lips. And so the very fact that Moses states here, says, I've been rejected not once but twice. Once by the Pharaoh and twice by my own people. This Doesn't this sound like the three-strike rule? And am, I, and am I out? I can go sit in the dugout and you can send someone else? He also brings up the excuse again of the, at the burning bush that he doesn't speak eloquently. But he says it in a more interesting way, doesn't he? He says, I am a man with uncircumcised lips. Now, I'm, I think he's referencing back to his moral failure that we talked about, that real difficult passage in chapter 4, when he failed to have his son Gershom circumcised. And here Moses now knows that with all the rejection and all that has gone wrong, I think he is acutely aware of his moral failures and believing now that these failures and rejections are his own faults just like any one of us have ever felt before. And so Moses is admitting to the Lord, I can't do this. I can't do this because I am, I am unworthy to do this. I can't do this because I can't. The Pharaoh won't listen to me because of, my, because of my sin. And doesn't this often feel in the Christian life like obedience feels like? Doesn't it often feel like we can't do it, or we make the excuse that I can't be obedient because I'm not worthy of, of it, so of any of this, so why even try? And this is the very excuse that Moses is giving, as if there is nothing that the Lord can do. Three strikes, he is out. But then we get to verse 13. In verse 13, the Lord does not answer Moses' questions. He doesn't try to give any kind of further instructions to Moses, but one very thing, go, be obedient. Go and be obedient. And all that the Lord has called us to do in his word. These are the things that we are called to be obedient to, regardless of how we feel or how successful we think that we will be. Whether it be in evangelism, whether it be in missions or discipling, studying God's word, trusting in the Lord in certain areas of our life where maybe we have fear or, or anxiety, actually praying, spending time in prayer, turning to the Lord daily for yourself and for your bro fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Whether that obedience is just fighting temptation and pursuing holiness and the other myriad of, of ways to, to be obedient. Our role in all of that, when it does not make sense to us, is still to just be obedient. And in that obedience, we are not blindly following, but we are following by faith. And we are trusting our sovereign God. To have faith and trust and obey. Someone should write a song, Trust and Obey. To have faith and obey, to not to think that we can produce the success or pull off the results that we think that should happen. 
because the results of our obedience is not our job. That is the Lord's work. And clearly, that's what we see at hand here. The people rejected Moses. Pharaoh refused Moses' command, but, but God still called Moses to be obedient. Moses, you are not the answer. You're not the one that's going to fix this. I'm the one that's going to do all this. You're just called to be obedient. You're just called to, to be obedient. And interesting enough, you might remember that Moses called this. He predicted all this back in chapter 4. He said, the people aren't going to believe me. Pharaoh is going to reject me. And that's exactly what happened. But the Lord also in all of that is telling Moses and has told Moses, Moses, don't let any of that surprise you. Don't let that rejection surprise you because that's what's going to happen. The Lord told him in chapter 3, verse 19, that the king of Egypt was not going to let you go unless he is compelled by a mighty hand. Moses doesn't have the mighty hand. God does. And then chapter 4, verse 21, that despite all the signs that, that Moses performed before Pharaoh in chapter 5, he was still going to harden Pharaoh's heart to the point where he was not going to let the people go. And that's exactly how Moses, our Pharaoh responded in chapter 5, harsh and hard. And see, again, this is often where, dis where obedience, excuse me, often seems like it just doesn't make sense because it doesn't produce oftentimes the results that we want or that we think that they're going to produce. You know, we read Isaiah this morning. And I hope you had eyes to hear and ears to hear Isaiah this morning. Because that was the Lord's call to Isaiah to ministry. And it starts off in this grand and glorious way where the Lord says, Who shall I send? Grand and glorious. I mean, this is like the call of missionaries that they read at the missionary events and everybody. And here's Isaiah standing up and he says, Here am I, Lord, send me. And from there where we expect now Isaiah is going to have a magnificent, mighty ministry where all of Israel turns and comes back to the Lord. But God tells him the exact opposite. God tells him the exact opposite. He tells him that the people would never understand what you're preaching. They are never going to perceive the words of God. Their hearts would be dull. Their ears will be heavy. Their eyes will be blind. That's the kind of ministry and obedience that just doesn't make sense. Why send us, God, if this is the result that we are going to receive? Unless we think that Isaiah was the same, we can turn to Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 27, the Lord told Jeremiah, he said, So you shall speak all these words to them. All of these things, the words of God, but they will not listen to you. <laughs> you shall call them, but they will not answer you. How would you handle that? How, how would you handle that, that, that God has called you to share the gospel with your friend? That is lost as a pickle in a pea patch. And God has told you to share the gospel, right? We, we know the word is, God says, share the gospel. And this is someone God has put in your life. But you know that they're never going to listen that they're never going to hear, they're never going to listen. That does not make sense to us. That doesn't make sense to us. Then, then, then why go? And the answer is because the Lord has his reason. Unless we think that two is not enough, let's go to a third and let's go to the prophet Ezekiel. And the prophet Ezekiel in chapter 3, the Lord tells Ezekiel to eat this scroll. To eat a scroll and he eats this scroll and it tastes like honey to him. And so again, we have this magnificent thing. Here's God's word that he's ingesting. He's taking in him and he's ready to proclaim it. It's something sweet. It's something good. Surely the people are going to want something sweet and something good. And but the Lord tells Ezekiel in chapter three, he says in verse five, for you are not sent to a people of foreign speech and a hard language, but to the house of Israel. Not to many peoples of foreign speech and a hard language who words you cannot, you cannot understand. Meaning there's no language barrier. There's no cultural barrier. These are your people. 
He says, surely if I sent you to such, they would listen. Surely they would listen. But the house of Israel would not be willing to listen to you. For they are not willing to listen to me because all the house of Israel have a hard forehead and a stubborn heart. And so what's the purpose then in being obedient? Why would Ezekiel take this honey sweet scroll and give it to people who would just spit it out? Why go preaching that sweet word to people who would never turn and hear? It's not until Ezekiel 37 does the prophet understand what the Lord is saying. Because in Ezekiel 37, the obedience that he is called to do gets pretty ridiculous. Ezekiel is taken to the valley filled with dry bones in the desert. And the Lord asks Ezekiel, dry bones, dead people everywhere, dry bones. And he says, Ezekiel, can these bones live? Now, by this time, Ezekiel has learned his lesson. And this is how he answered. And he goes, oh, Lord, you know. And the Lord tells Ezekiel to prophesy over them bones. And say, oh, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Now, this whole story, just in the context of just obedience, just makes no sense. What would preaching to dead people, bones, dry bones, make any sense or have any result at all from a man? None. And that's the whole point. And that's the, the whole point. As Ezekiel learns about being obedient because the Lord has his reasons, so are we to be obedient. Because in the valley, whether we are to preach to dry bones or whether we are to go to Pharaoh and tell him to let God's people go, the success alone belongs to the Lord. Our job is only to be obedient. And that's all. So the answer to the question is, what if they will not listen? Is do it anyway. Is to do it anyway. Chapter 7, verse 3, we get some insight of what's going on here. And it says, the Lord says, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Yes, there are deep theological things here. We'll touch some of that in a little bit. But what the Lord is telling Moses is the matter of fact. You being there, brother, has nothing to do with convincing Pharaoh because I am hardening his heart. My plan is being accomplished. My will is happening. He will not listen. But brother, Moses, you are still a part of the plan. You see, Moses' role in the plan is not to be the very instrument of God's victory. He is not God's sword. The point here is that the Lord himself is the one alone accomplishes the victory over Egypt. As he alone is the one who has accomplished his victory over sin and death on our behalf. Moses' role and his calling is only to be obedient and to be faithful. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not trying to downplay Moses' very important role that he plays in the book of Exodus and the Old Testament. But the Lord is showing Moses and he is showing us that he is the one that does the work. He gives the fruit. He gives the victory. And our role, like Moses, is to be obedient and faithful to God's word, to set ourselves to be faithful to God's word. So when obedience does not make sense at all, hear the word of the Lord, brother and sister and friend. Get back at it. In the second section of our passage, verses 14 through 27, we come to this excursus in the text. And just when things are building up, we see this, the God commanding Moses again, get back to obedience, to stay on track. We come right in the middle of this text, it seems like, this genealogy, right? Our very favorite things that we like to do at Sovereign Grace Church. We're, we're very accustomed to these things. It's, it's almost like 
that feeling as a child when you finally get to go to Disney World and you just can't wait to ride Space Mountain because you now you're old enough, you're tall enough. And everyone's super excited. You get in the park. Everyone's so excited. You get there and you go up to the ride and you see that the line and the wait time says 180 minutes. Talk about disappointment. Talk about a letdown. And that's sort of what this genealogy feels like to us and to me, particularly in this text. It feels like a, like a disappointment or a, or a letdown. But we know that genealogies are important. And it is here in this text for, the, for a very specific reason here in Exodus 6. It starts off in a, in a way like it's going to be the long, complete uh, uh, genealogy of, of all the tribes of Israel because it starts off with Reuben, then Simeon, and then on to Levi. But where it stops is on Levi and his sons, and then it lists out five generations from, from Levi, even future generations that haven't even come yet. Levi's sons, then we see in this, in this, gen, in this genealogy, is the focus. But it specifically highlights on who? on Moses and Aaron. Those who were called, as it says, those who were called by God to bring the word, of, the word to Egypt. And particularly what he is showing us that these are God's prophets. These are the people that God has made for this. Remember that the tribe of, of, of Levi, they would become the, the tribe of priests. The priests that represent the, the rest of the people before before God. And here we, we see exactly where Moses and Aaron come from. And that is significant because look at the importance of the role that they are playing. Certainly, again, it's God who does the work, but look at the, the significance of the role that Moses and Aaron have. They didn't come from nowhere. Now, there's a lot that we can unpack from this list. There's a lot of good, and there's certainly a lot of bad. And there's a lot of ugly. But I want to focus on one main thing. And this is sort of a theme that is flowing through Exodus, and that is notice the women that are mentioned in the text and the important role that they play. There's Aaron and Moses' mother, whose name is Yoshebed. And we talked about Yoshebed back in, uh, back in chapter 1 and how she was faithful to preserve the life of Moses by putting him in a little ark and sending him down the Nile. And Yoshebed's name literally means Lord is glory. How beautiful is that? But there is another woman mentioned here, and that's Aaron's wife, Elishaheba. Verse 23, she's, she's the daughter of Abinadab, and it tells us that, the daughter of Abinadab. Now, that may mean nothing to you, but what it means is, is that Aaron's wife was not a Levite, but Abinadab was of the tribe of Judah. Now, this fact is, is significant in relationship to one very, very important thing, and that is the ancestry of Jesus Christ himself. For the biblical genealogies, that, that links us right here to the, from the line of Judah to the line of David and ultimately to Jesus Christ himself. Now there in this genealogy, what we see happening here is this blending, the blending of the priesthood and the kingly lines, which again for us is a foreshadowing of the person and work of Jesus Christ as priest and king. Now, I know you have this question, what in the world does this have to do with obedience? Well, the answer is nothing, except, except the genealogy is proving that Moses and Aaron are God's chosen men for this role in more ways than they could ever perceive or even come close to understanding that even to us today is still a light dimly, dimly lit. And yet there we see the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The Lord has planned for the salvation of his people through, through their obedience. And this genealogy shows us that the Lord has called 
Moses and Aaron for this specific role and for their obedience then leads all the way to Christ. Brothers and sisters, we, we don't look at our genealogies to determine our calling. We don't look at our genealogies to fuel our obedience. In fact, the Bible tells us, the New Testament tells us we are to stay away from those who are seeking to bog us down in endless genealogies. But nevertheless, if you are in Christ, then you have been called. You have been called by God's sovereign grace into salvation before the foundation of the world by his election. And the purpose of our election, brothers and sisters, is not our own, but it is his and for his glory. And in very particular, we see from Ephesians 1, verses 3 and 4, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessings in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. And as the line of Moses and Aaron can be traced back and traced back to show that they were the ones who were called for this very specific moment for obedience, we can trace our election by God's grace into the cross of Jesus Christ that we have been grafted in for the purpose, as we see from Ephesians 1, for the purpose of obedience, for holiness and blamelessness before him. And so when obedience seems difficult, when it seems hard, when it seems seemingly impossible, remember that if you are in Christ, this is what you were made for, to be obedient. In the third section of our passage, we go back to the story. Verses 28 through 30 reads as the recap of, 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 of what happened before the genealogy, sort of a just in case the genealogy bogs you down so much you can't remember what's really happening. That's what verses 28 and 30 are. But then we get to verse, chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. And again, the Lord speaks to Moses like he did back in chapter 6 with five definitive statements of truth about what's about to go down. And I think he communicates to Moses and, and to him and saying to him in his obedience that I will be with you. That in your obedience, Moses, I will be with you. Meaning our obedience is not in our obedience we are not alone. And when it does not make sense or when we're standing against the tides of culture or temptations and when our hearts try to deceive us, we must remember that we are not alone and that he will be with us. And if you look at these five statements, verse 1 says, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. And that's a very interesting statement and a big statement. We could spend a long time talking about it, but remember this, Pharaoh did not recognize God did not recognize his word, didn't recognize who spoke to him. But now the presence of Moses will remind Pharaoh of how small he is and how big Moses is, that he would be like God to Pharaoh. Isn't that a massive shift to where Moses is right now? In the second verse, he says, You shall speak all that I command you. You, uh, Aaron, and you will be my prophet. Moses will be God's prophet, and Aaron will be Moses' prophet. Not only is this overcoming that speech problem that Moses has, but God is elevating Moses to a status here because now Moses has a spokesman. Moses has someone that is speaking for him. Kind of a goofy illustration and, and um, the joke is, is that one time the, the Pope said to his chauffeur that he wanted to drive the old Pope-mobile. And uh, the chauffeur was a little reluctant. Now I'm probably going to lose my job for this. But he's the Pope, and he wants to drive. And he wanted to drive that thing fast. And so he gets in that thing, and he's driving pretty quick around the hills and the, the roads, the windy roads of Rome. And before they know it, they find themselves being pulled over by a police officer. They're in Rome. The police officer comes up to the window, and he, says, and he looks at the window, and as soon as he rolls down the window, he, he sees the Pope, and he says, excuse me for a minute. He goes back to his car or motorcycle or whatever, and he, he gets on the radio, and he calls in, and he says, hey, I just pulled over someone very important. I mean, they are so important. Now, I don't know who it is, 
but this person must be very important if the Pope is chauffeuring him. <laughs> now, that's sort of like Moses and Aaron here. When you have a spokesman, you, your status has been elevated before Pharaoh. In the third verse, God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, multiply my signs and wonders in the land. And the concept here is still the same as that we've already heard, but the, the Hebrew word here for harden is actually different than what we saw back in chapter 4, and it literally means that he has made his heart to be stubborn. He has made his heart to be stubborn. And we already know and seen from the text that, that Pharaoh has already given himself over to his stubbornness and pride. And so what the Lord is telling Moses here is, I'm just giving him over to his sin and to his stubbornness, and to his pride. Now this confirms his, his unyielding and his unrepentant spirit, why he will not listen to you. But what we see here on display is the sovereignty of God even over this little king who thinks he is high and mighty. Brothers and sisters, our obedience to God's word is fueled certainly by rich theological truth and the sovereignty of God. And fourth, in verse 4, the Lord tells Moses why Pharaoh's heart is hardened. It's because I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my people out of Egypt. He alone, he alone knows the timing of when he will judge Egypt. He alone knows the means and the way by which he is going to accomplish his plan. I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my people out of Egypt. And so we are reminded again that success is not necessarily dependent upon us, but rather we are called to be obedient. But the Lord will accomplish his plan at his time for his glory. And we do, then we just do everything else that he tells us to do. We say everything that he tells us to say. And we pray as he wants us to pray and has us to pray because nothing happens as until he is ready for something to happen, until he stretches out his mighty and verse 5, very powerful verse, and I think this really encompasses the meaning here. The Egyptians will know, they will know that I am Yahweh. And you remember when Pharaoh said, who's Yahweh? And God says, oh, he'll know. Oh, he, he, they'll know. They, they will know. The Lord will have the Egyptians know. And that is what he is doing with each and every sign and wonder that is about to come. Now certainly God could at this moment, could have crushed them and then and there, could have crushed Egypt right then and there, delivered them out with, with not one plague that hit them, but certainly could have delivered them right then and there. But no, that wasn't his plan. His plan is for Egypt to know that he is the Lord to know that he is Yahweh, to know that the Lord loves his people and will deliver his people. And you see, brothers and sisters, again, our, our everyday obedience may seem mundane, it may seem small, it may seem insignificant or even senseless, but not to the Lord. But the point is for us to know this, as Moses was told to be obedient, because the Lord is with him. We are to be obedient because the Lord is with us. And did Jesus not leave us with the same commands? The same commands to go, to be obedient in the Great Commission? Go, be obedient. Make disciples, baptizing them, teaching them all his commands. And Jesus says right at the very end, he says, but and behold, I am with you always even to the end of the age. Isn't that wonderful? That in our obedience, that doesn't make sense, it seems meaningless, it seems mundane, it seems senseless, it seems difficult, whatever it may be, whatever excuse we can say, I'm a man of uncircumcised lips, whatever it you can say, that we know that we are called to be obedient, to just get back at it, because we were made for this, because he is with us, 
even to the end of the age. And with verses 6 and 7 summing it all up for us, answering the question, will Aaron and Moses be obedient? And the answer, thankfully, is yes. They were obedient. They do all that the Lord has commanded. I love that. It, it just sums it up. They do all that the Lord has commanded them to do and all that the Lord has commanded them to say. And he, in verse 7 tells us that even for men in their 80s, 80 years old, dear beloved Christian, there are times with, when obedience seems difficult, when it seems impossible, when it seems even senseless. You may have areas of your life, even this morning, where you are not walking in obedience to God's word. Do you have to be able to see every angle of the outcome to be obedient? You see, it comes down to one simple thing, and that is, do you trust the word of God? Do you, do you trust the, the, the word of God? Is it true? Is the, the Lord's will for your life, holiness and blamelessness, obedience, is that what is truly good for you? As the Bible says, it is. And so may we pray for one another as we reflect and meditate upon that particular question alone. May we pray for one another that the answer to that question is that though we may struggle in it, that may it be said of you that by God's grace that we did all that was commanded of us. Whether you're 14 years old or whether you are 83 years old, our calling is still the same to get back at it because this is what we were made for. And to remember that he will always be with you. And as we sang last Sunday in verse 3 of one of our favorite songs, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer, gracious Savior of my ruined life, my guilt and cross laid on your shoulders. In my place you suffered, bled, and died. You rose from the grave and death is conquered. You broke my bonds of sin and shame, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. May all my days bring glory to your name. And all God's people say, amen. amen. Praise the Lord.